and the same thing was happening in the beauty industry where you had creators, artists, etc., who were able to go to partners, make their products, market their products, distribute their products online, create fandom with their social contacts with their customers and fans. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Cece Kurzman, the founder and president of Nexus Management Group, a distinguished talent management firm turned investment company. She shares with us invaluable insights on her life as a senior executive in the music industry, her extensive corporate board experience, and the launch of her business, Our X. Her mission to change the hair care industry by focusing on the needs and opportunities of the multicultural consumer is inspiring. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Cece, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Sam. I'm so excited to join you. We have a lot to talk about as you've had such a great background and history and work experience. So let us start with your current role and what you're doing today as the founder of Nexus Management Group. Can you tell us about the company, why you started it, and what were you trying to bring to the industry that wasn't there? Nexus Management, I started in 2004, and it's had many identities since. It was originally started as a talent management company. My first client was Shakira. I had just left Sony Music, where I'd been an executive for many years. I really felt like it was time to do something sort of entrepreneurial in the business. There were no women managing artists and no female-led management companies at the time that I could identify. The idea of having a female-fronted management company handling female artists was really interesting to me. And it was also really scary because having worked in sort of the corporate sector for a long time where you have a lot of scaffolding, a lot of resources, a lot of support, there I was having to set up an office, set up phone lines, figure out how to book travel. It was great. Very important experience to understand what it was like to really start your own business and to be an entrepreneur and to be sort of kicked out on your own. That was the start of Nexus. So yes, Nexus was formed to handle talent, build their careers. And I think what I identified as my point of differentiation was to ensure that artists had second acts. Most artists like athletes and other cultural icons, they have these very, very bright careers that reach a peak. And then eventually they have the slide in their career due to natural, organic relevance erosion. There are very few artists in that career class who are at their apex throughout their entire lives. The idea was, how do you maintain the earning potential for that artist once they're no longer at their peak in terms of cultural relevance? So leveraging the influence while it was at its peak to ensure that they had annuities beyond the ability to generate diversified revenue that didn't involve them singing, dancing, showing up, performing. And it was a much more business-focused strategy. So taking artists and figuring out how they enter the business world. And we did that through direct investments into private companies. Cap tables we really had no business being in, but somehow appreciated having investors who were at that inflection point where culture and business meet. That's how we started building an investment portfolio. 
And eventually Nexus evolved into a platform to do direct investments for artists and then independent investments. So interesting to hear you describe your approach. It strikes me as being unusual and that you weren't only trying to maximize to their peak, as you said, but really help think about how could they have a viable and lucrative career beyond. Was that something that struck your clients as new? Had they seen that before? I don't know that they'd seen that specifically before. I think it was aided over time. You started to see a lot of talent trying to move into the business world as owners, as investors. You saw Ashton Kutcher build a fund. You saw Dr. Dre build Beats with his partners. Artists as entrepreneurs and as CEOs was starting to take shape. Now, once you saw those companies develop and have real exits or real liquidity events, that got their attention. Many people outside of these circles think athletes and entertainers are wealthy in a way that they have created generational wealth. In very few cases is this the case, unless they have assets that they own, unless they own their catalogs, unless they own their rights, and very few do. So historically, these artists, they make money singing, dancing, performing. They get paid for what they do. It's a service contract. And this doesn't create that kind of wealth over time. The make money while you sleep kind of wealth only happens if you have some level of ownership in something. So it was a bit of a mind shift to get artists to understand that it wasn't just about the check in the mail. I think that also is something you have to develop over time and you have to point to examples so they start to understand how meaningful it can be when you're very accustomed to really a fee-for-services business. That makes sense. That is really fascinating. Then as you migrated or moved Nexus toward more of an investment firm, was that a gradual shift or did you at some point say, okay, we're going to make this conscious redirection and strategy? It was an intentional shift, but it happened over time as we started to do more investments on behalf of the artists. For example, Shakira, I managed the full career soup to nuts. Alicia Keys, I didn't manage. I handled just this element of her business, building these structures. Having been at that point in the industry doing the talent artist development at that point going on 20 years, it felt like a very natural thing, intellectually challenging, allowed me to diversify my own network and my own professional experience outside of the music industry because most of our investments we did alongside private equity. We had the opportunity to piggyback on the terms and on the diligence of more institutional partners allowed me the opportunity to really meet people in all these fields, look at businesses in a lot of different categories and industries, and do quite a bit of light learning. And it was very stimulating intellectually and in terms of building a network of people beyond the entertainment industry. So it became very intentional because management, I won't say nobody can do it forever, but it's one of those jobs that at a certain point you do want to change. It's a very full on 24 seven, putting out the fires, keeping the wheels on the bus type job. And I knew that at some point I would want to pivot away from that. 
For me, at that particular moment in time, I had just had children. I had some other family things that were happening in my personal life that really signaled that I needed to change my lifestyle and be at home more, more grounding to my life and movements. And so it all kind of happened at the same time. It all made sense because all of these moments were sort of converging where I was sort of timing out of talent managing. I was in a position where I had to very much put my family focus first. I was also getting very interested and excited about this world that I was seeing beyond the entertainment business and wanted to continue to explore and pursue that further. It sort of naturally came to pass that I was able to move away from day-to-day talent management and focus more on the direct investments and ultimately doing that off my own balance sheet. And that's really where the board work began. Having worked with a lot of these management teams and investors over time, the natural evolution was being asked to serve on various boards. And it was a continuation of, I say, the light learning and career and professional evolution to be honored to be asked to serve on some of these boards. Well, you are on so many spectacular boards, Warner, Revlon, Lanvin. I'm curious, how do you find the experience as a board director across all of these companies? Do you find similarities? Do you find that given they're all different, they have unique challenges that they're going through? How do you look at that? They're all very different. Specifically, did not do anything in the entertainment sector for several years because I did think it was important to sort of step away from it for a little bit. So when I came back in, I would be someone with perspective. I could come back in with a bit of a blank slate because growing up in the record business and then the management business, you form very distinct points of view that are informed by your experience informed by the history and you're sort of burdened by your own experience and it can pollute some of your views and perspectives on the current state or future state of that industry. So you'll see the pattern. I only came back into Warner Music and the UTAs relatively recently in the past few years because I did want to specifically explore industries that might have been tangential to but not squarely aligned with the entertainment and media business. So that's why Revlon, consumer, very much at that intersection of culture and the zeitgeist, very marketing focused. Social media was a new driving force at the time. And I saw a lot of what was happening in beauty that paralleled what had been happening in the music business, strangely. In the music business, you saw this collapse of the big intermediaries. It used to be the gatekeepers were radio and retail and press Now you had artists who could make their own records, produce them, distribute them, market them, and do everything direct to consumer. That was really starting to dislocate the status quo and a lot of the incumbents. And the same thing was happening in the beauty industry where you had creators, artists, et cetera, who were able to go to partners, make their products 
market their products, distribute their products online, create fandom with their social contacts, with their customers and fans, and working with a lot of these founders, stylists, entrepreneurs, artists in the beauty sector very much reminded me of having developed artists. In terms of business model innovation, you were seeing a lot of parallels there. That's why Revlon specifically interested me. And that was my second board. I love how you thought about the boards that you were on and really taking the core experience you had, that consumer experience and seeing the changing business model in one business or sector, music, and translating that into others. When you counsel other women about pursuing board seats, how would you counsel them if they don't have that exact experience that companies might be looking for, given what you were able to do in really crossing over? The first question I ask women who are interested in board work is why? I think that's actually for an individual, one of the most important things to identify. And then the road becomes a little clearer at that point. There are a lot of very valid reasons, some of which are like myself, you want to diversify your own career path and do some light learning, but you're at a point in your career where you're not going to just (laughs) chuck out your track record and start something new. I, for one, had always been associated with the music industry and CC, music executives. I sort of wanted to change hats and no longer be known as singularly as that and broaden my own scope and profile beyond the entertainment industry. And I think that's a valid reason. Doing the light learning, diversifying your career journey. In the case of somebody who's sitting in management, it's great development to be working side by side with another CEO or another management team and seeing how they operate. There are some who I think want to do it because they feel like it's a notch on their resume. And I think there's something to be said for that. But as long as it doesn't inform choices that are not well-developed and well-researched, there are a lot of liabilities being on a board as well. And so one has to be very thoughtful about that. One is there is, in fact, liability. Boards get sued. Boards get sued a lot, as a matter of fact. It is a risk one takes, even with insurance. It is a risk that you have to go into eyes wide open. If someone is at a stage in their career where they are a senior management or are leading a business, investors, shareholders, et cetera, sometimes have mixed views about someone whose sole focus should be driving value for their company and them as shareholders spending time and earning money, right, working on behalf of another company. And generally, that company is doing really well. You don't get a lot of flowback. Goodness forbid your company is in a point of transition or having a moment which is not as strong, and you're going to get shareholders and your board will probably look askance at you moonlighting for another company. There's a reason why most people who do board work are retired. The other piece is you have to be available. It's not a huge time commitment as long as the company is doing well, but you're expected to be there when that board is called to order. And for people who are, again, in sitting management jobs, sometimes it's hard to juggle 
when there are mandatory things four times a year, in the case of some international companies, many more than four times a year, and attendance is really mandatory. A lot of things to think about when you're considering what it's going to do for you as a professional, as an executive, in terms of one's own personal profile. One other reason that I think is a very positive reason to consider boards is who do you want to learn from, sit next to? You're spending a decent amount of time with these people. You want to make sure that they are people whom you will learn, who have good character, integrity, absolutely focused on driving value and productivity, and that as a collective, you're a force for good. Really doing the research into the people that you sit next to is important. I've been on incredibly high-functioning boards, and I've been on some boards that are wounded. And a lot of that comes down to people. Really understanding the whys will inform the who's and then inform the what boards you should serve on. And effectively, I think saying you're probably going to end up saying no more than you say yes, because there should be a pretty high bar of criteria of what that board needs to do for you. And also, what is the value transfer? What value are you bringing to a board? The most high functioning board I've been on was actually a nonprofit board, the school I went to. And I went onto the board and there were seven sitting public company CEOs on the board. In the case of many nonprofits, these big institutions, you'll find a really incredible community of people who are not making money, but in fact, donating money. The best part about serving on a board like that was the relationships, of course. But also, since it's a non-for-profit, everybody comes in the same. Titles are left at the door. Market caps are left at the door. Everybody is in there to serve the institution and for the betterment of the institution. You have a lot of people who have a lot of experience ensuring that things get done and get done in the right way. I would say, obviously, those relationships, because it was a 10-year run, invaluable to me and have been some of my greatest mentors and friends and colleagues since in many other fields. You're giving us so much to think about. That is terrific. I would love to segue into what you're also doing now as an entrepreneur. You started a company called Our X, and I'd love for you to tell us what is the company's mission? What are you trying to solve? The company is all mission as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely business, if any of my investors are listening. Over the years in the beauty industry, I started to look at a particular category. I always like to invest in inclusive consumer. Where are those white spaces? Who's an underserved community? And there was in the multicultural, and I'm using that term because it's the one that's used in the beauty industry, it was pretty behind. I think we saw something happen when Rihanna brought Fenty to market, which was effectively drawing attention to the fact that prestige brands weren't truly inclusive in terms of shade range. And there's a lot of bias that goes into that, which centers around, well, there's a perception this consumer is a low-income consumer, a mass consumer, not a consumer who will be attentive to things like product innovation and performance, et cetera. So when she introduced, with the help of LVMH and Kendo and Sephora, a frontline prestige brand that was truly inclusive, she actually triggered what I call the Fenty effect. On the back of that, every company had to have at least 40 shades, whereas previously they'd had eight, they'd had 12, and any major company that wasn't doing that was really at risk. 
publicly and socially. And to see that company be as successful as it was, it really demonstrated the power of the consumer in this market, the share of wallet that the consumer commands. We also have seen the same in fashion, where haute couture and high-end fashion has really become part of the culture in large part because of music and its role in the zeitgeist and coming off its high perch and becoming much more known as the brands that are known from my kids who are young kids know Gucci and Balenciaga because of music and to people who are shopping in showrooms in Paris. A lot of that is attributable not only to music and to how culture has brought these brands to the forefront, but you're also seeing a different consumer in the stores. Again, really trying to identify who this consumer is, where they've been underserved, how much share of wallet that they can command and demand. That's really what I was seeing in beauty, specifically the last bastion of sort of segregation in it I found was hair care. Because still you looked into hair care and while all these business model innovations had become table stakes, e-commerce, personalization, clean, sustainable, data-driven, none of that had reached the multicultural hair care world. It was in mass retail, it was in single-use plastic, bad toxic ingredients that we would never use today in anything else, no real e-com to speak of. And so it was sort of really looking at the market and trying to understand if, as a consumer, my experience was anecdotal or if it was real. So started by going out and doing a bunch of research around professional, millennial consumers, how they viewed this category. And inevitably, our research told us that this particular consumer that we targeted had very, very high expectations of brands in every other category. This consumer was a Yeti purchaser. This consumer had a Peloton bike. This consumer had all these other brands where they expected to be spoken to, seen, addressed on a very personal level. These brands to know them as well as they knew themselves, a quality of content. But when it came to hair care, accepted the fact that they had to have a very different experience. The fact that they have to have a very mass experience from a retail perspective, that there isn't a very high-touch digital experience, that there isn't the Netflix of hair care. This didn't bleed into their hair care experience, despite the fact that that was one of the categories that they over-index in, in terms of spend and time. There wasn't a lot of data to support it. So that was really the first mission was to create a data index that would demonstrate this particular consumer within the consumer that is highly active, highly engaged, a lot of discretionary spend happening and had a very high expectation for brands. Did developing that kind of profile help you, number one, get investment behind you, and then two, lead you to a product set more easily? Was it very clear then what that consumer wanted? Since it was a research-driven plan that evolved from really listening for several years as to what's missing and what you'd want, rather than continuing to give this consumer what they've always been given and assume that's what they want. The plan was built on that feedback and information, and the concept for the business was built on that feedback. It's less a product company than I describe it as a Noom for textured hair. It's a personalized system that takes an individual's data and creates a customized plan for them and shapes it 
through product and one-to-one coaching and personalized content feed that stays sort of with you day in, day out. It's funny you ask about fundraising and you would think, I've done a lot of stuff in time. I have experience as an investor on the boards of big beauty companies, have built brands, have built big billion-dollar brands. You would think it's really easy. I went the traditional route just to see what it would look like. Traditional investors invested in this category. And it was interesting because what I heard was a reaffirmation of all the biases and the stereotypes that were the reason we're doing this. It's a niche audience audience that won't spend beyond a certain thing. It's an audience that likes certain colors and likes certain smells. This kind of concept that it was this monolith of an audience just actually reinforced my dedication to do something because I said, this is the problem. And when you looked at, there was a huge disparity when you looked at companies that were formed for the general market and then companies that were formed with this market, there was no funding. And so you see a lot of these independent brands putting together businesses with spit and glue and then their counterparts with the proverbial few words on the napkin getting huge funding. And maybe in the end, I'm not a big believer in raise as much as you can and then figure it out later. I'm a big believer in raise what you need, make yourself profitable. And then if you raise more capital, it's for growth and not for operations. I think we're seeing the cracks in that strategy, that early VC strategy now. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the businesses that took the big cash are really struggling to find themselves and to stand on their feet because they're working to pay back the investors. They're not working to build a business that they had always envisioned building and lasting for generations and becoming the next L'Oreal or the next Revlon. And that's unfortunate. I really wanted to have a diverse cap table, which was also a bit of a lift. And in the end, I'm fortunate that I have a lot of relationships and people I've worked with in all sectors for many years. So our investor cap table, one, is very representative. It's led by a fund, two black female GPs. And then most of the rest of the cap table is female entrepreneurs. So well, you don't have to go in and explain that it's not niche. You don't have to go in and explain <laughs> the addressable market. It's very validating. And many of them are people that I've worked with over the course of my career. It does feel very much like a community, a team, all there for the right reasons. So I think I'm very fortunate. But in that, I also want to ensure that we don't overlook the fact that <laughs> this is not the case for most and use it as a platform to spotlight that some of these criteria are false criteria that they're judging these companies. I'd love to hear them what your goals are for this year or even the near term for the company. Our goal is to put out the first data index on this consumer. The best way to make change is to give information, whether it's the big beauty, the institutions, the investors, when they can see the stats. This consumer is active, engaged, dispensing a lot of discretionary dollars and also driving a lot of other brands that you don't know about. As much as there isn't a brand that we're talking about in this sector, people are looking in other sectors to adapt it. Olaplex has a huge following from this sector, yet guess what? 
science driven. <laughs> it's not inexpensive. It has a very different profile that's never been connected with this particular consumer. I hope with data, and we're doing a lot of first person data collection, it will inform the industry a little bit about who this consumer is and that it is not a monolith and that within this customer base, they need to see who this consumer is and the share of wallet that this consumer commands. So that's my this year goal is to really be able to hand that over. And hopefully the result of that would be more access to investment for entrepreneurs who want to be in this space and showing that there is really an addressable market in this space. And hopefully the big institutions will also look differently at this category. I think if you look at the big beauty companies, they've really segmented and segregated the groups who work on this category. And in many cases, it's separate and not very equal, not the same budgets, not the same teams, not the same access to innovation or marketing best practices. So I would actually love to challenge the beauty industry to fold those categories and move everybody into what is universally a general market so that there is this value exchange. And I think it's happened in all the other categories. <laughs> this is sort of the last one. And I think it needs to see this category and this consumer differently. So Cece, if people are looking for more information on you, they will find a lot of news articles talking about how you were the first to do certain things, the first woman, the first Black woman to hold certain positions, to be on certain boards like the Warner board. What does that mean to you to be the first? Does that bring also pressure in that you have to carry the torch for so many others? First, being the first presumes that there will be others to follow. <laughs> which has not often been the case. So I will just leave that note there. There have been moments where I felt very proud of that role because I did feel like it was breaking down barriers. And there were moments where I give you an example. When I joined the Warner Music Board, specifically didn't want a press release to go out <laughs> because I knew it would be interpreted in the industry as female Black board member. Yes, I happen to be the first Black board member and a woman. However, it completely overlooked the fact that I'd been a 20-year veteran of the music business and had served on several public boards at that point. <laughs> While it is a very illustrious board of many people who've run many different companies, I was the only person on the board with music experience. The fact that the takeaway from that was not that I was qualified, but that I was a woman and a Black woman leads one to believe that somehow that is the reason <laughs> that I'm on that board and not the 20 plus years of experience and the extensive public board experience. That is, I think, something that happens more often than not and does discount a lot of the work we've done to get there. Well, Cece, it's so great to speak with you here. Thank you so much. Your career has been so fascinating. And I just love all the lessons that you shared with this audience in so many different regards. So thank you for being with us and sharing your story. Sam, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And I'm absolutely honored to have been invited to join you.
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Cece. I loved hearing how she counsels women who want to join boards and encourages them to be clear on what they want to gain and accomplish. It's also great to hear about the pivots she made in her own career and how she evolved her experiences across different industries. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.